You're listening to What's the Difference podcast, an audio and video series on living with visible and visible disabilities, created and hosted by Jackie Rosen and co-hosted by Sarah Patel. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at podcast WTD, or connect with us via email at what's the difference podcast at gmail.com. Welcome to another episode of What's the Difference podcast. I'm your host, Jackie Rosen. My co-host is Sarah Patel. She's here with me today. Hi, guys. And we have a special guest today, Mallory Whitmore, who is an advocate for formula feeding for babies. Now, the reason you might be wondering why is this topic on What's the Difference podcast? Well, as a person with a disability, um, I had a very difficult time choosing to formula feed my daughter when she was born. Um, I felt like I needed body autonomy immediately after the pregnancy was over because my body was exhausted. Being pregnant with a disability is very, very difficult. And I never wanted to breastfeed in the first place. However, uh, I was kind of forced into it. And because of that, I spiraled into a little bit of postpartum depression and had horrible thoughts about myself and all that. And I didn't need this pressure. It's hard enough to recover from a pregnancy as it is, then add on a disability and it makes it even harder. And Mallory is an advocate for choice and that's why I wanted to bring her onto the podcast. So thank you for being here today. Absolutely, thank you so much for having me. It's such a a privilege and a pleasure. So tell us about yourself and why you became an advocate for formula feeding and for choice when it comes to feeding babies. Absolutely, so as you mentioned, I'm Mallory Whitmore. I am the formula mom on Instagram and some other platforms and I'm a certified infant feeding technician. And I had a similar experience to you after the birth of my daughter. I felt a ton of pressure um, from my medical team, from society, from trolls on the internet to breastfeed. And um, it just wasn't working for us for a variety of reasons uh, that I'm sure I'll get into as we continue our discussion. Um, And I knew that if I, as someone who considers myself to be educated and intelligent could not find good high quality information about formula, how to choose a formula, how to formula feed successfully, how to um, navigate some of the digestive challenges that can come with formula, that there must not be a lot of high quality information out there. And so I decided to to really fill that gap um, to provide the information that parents need so that they feel supported and empowered to feed their baby however works best for them. So Mallory, you've mentioned in some written posts about health issues leading up to the birth of your daughter. Can you tell us about those and how it impacted your pregnancy and birth experience? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I have had um, chronic pelvic pain for, gosh, probably 10 years now. And um, for a while, I didn't know if pregnancy was going to be possible for me. Um, I didn't know if pregnancy was possible, if it was what that was going to mean. Um, and it took until after the birth of my second son to actually get a diagnosis. Uh, before that, I know, as you know, in the, in the disability and chronic pain world, there's just a lot of get, sort of getting the runaround from provider to provider, trying to figure out what's going on. But um, eventually I was diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome type uh, three hypermobility type. And that has ended up explaining a lot of my symptoms. But basically what that means is that I have laxity in my joints, uh, laxity in my connective tissues, which causes high muscle tone, increased muscle tension as the muscles try to compensate for those really unstable joints. 
Um, and what that has meant in pregnancy is that um, I have a hypertonic pelvic floor. So those pelvic floor muscles are exceedingly tight to try to stabilize my pelvis, um, which has was the cause of my pelvic pain pre-pregnancy and then also was a big factor in deciding to have an elective C-section um, just because we knew that, that my pelvic floor muscles do not function the way that they are supposed to function, uh, both in terms of strengthening and lengthening. So, and given that I also felt like I had a, a fair bit of emotional trauma um, surrounding procedures and diagnostics with my pelvic floor, trying to figure out my pelvic pain for so many years, um, the idea of potentially creating more physical and emotional trauma via vaginal delivery just wasn't something that made sense um, physically or mentally, emotionally. So um, yeah, it has been such a journey trying to navigate uh, my chronic condition and the demands of pregnancy and postpartum, um, given that they're so intertwined in my case. Uh, I, I can't believe how similar our stories are because really? <laughs> I've had, I've had chronic pelvic mm -hmm. pain for nine years. I've talked about it on the podcast before, um, diagnosed with a UTI that was really bad and went out mm -hmm. of control, uh, back in 2012, okay. never been the same ever since. Oh, I gosh, also yeah. decided to, yeah, I decided to go mm -hmm. for an elective C-section because they said that the trauma would probably be less if I had a C-section mm -hmm. than if I tried a vaginal delivery. And I am so glad I did because mm -hmm. I can tell you right now, it was traumatic enough trying to carry a baby when you have mm -hmm. chronic bladder and vaginal pain. And then, you know, trying to imagining mm -hmm. a vaginal delivery was just terrifying to me. So I yeah, also- absolutely. Yeah, I totally get you there. So what was the experience like when you were trying to breastfeed and pump for your daughter? And at mm -hmm. what point was there like a breakthrough and being like, okay, you know what? I don't have to do this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my daughter was born early. I also had a complication with my placenta. So they ended up doing her C-section at 36 weeks, five days. So she was preterm just slightly. And looking back, she was just not quite ready to be on the outside. She was very sleepy, um, had a really poor suck, poor muscle, um, muscle control with her mouth. And actually we believe it now that she inherited my Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So part of that was likely related to, um, to the muscle control issues there, but, um, breast trying to breastfeed in the hospital was just a mess. She wouldn't latch. She wasn't coordinating her sucking appropriately. She was losing weight. By the time we were at day three, she had lost 12% of her body weight. And we were like, this is not working. She is not thriving. I am not thriving. I already felt a weight of postpartum depression come on just from the sleep deprivation from trying to nurse every two hours and, and everything else. And so we decided to start supplementing with formula, um, that third day. And she, I mean, sucked it down like she was starving because she probably was. Oh. And, um, and then I continued to pump for about until about five weeks. And I was like, this just isn't working. It was too difficult for me to try to manage the formula feeding, the trying to get her to latch, the pumping, washing all the pump parts, keeping track of when the milk was expressed and how long that's good for. And then when the formula was poured and how long that was good for. And I was just like, I don't think that this makes sense to try to continue. And it was challenging because, you know, all you hear in the hospital and from your providers and from your child's pediatrician is breast is best, breast is best, breast is best. 
Um, and there was absolutely a point early on where I felt like, gosh, my baby's not even six weeks old and I've already failed. Like I had one job, um, which is to give my baby the best and I can't even do that. And it was really damaging and it was really hard to overcome, you know, when you're also recovering from a C-section and you're sleep deprived and you're trying to navigate this whole new role, um, to also be trying to work through those feelings of feeling insufficient or feeling like you failed your baby or feeling like you've let down your baby, um, because of, of choosing formula. So that's really a, a big reason why I started my platform was to try to help other parents who have found themselves in that sort of situation. What actually ended up happening, I have an identical twin sister and she has the same the same sort of symptoms. So we knew that there was likely something genetic at play mm-hmm. and we both have had relatively frequent dislocations, um, knee dislocations, hyoid bone in the neck, um, ankle dislocations as well. And so I started doing some research about what could be related to all of these dislocations because I was like, this is not right. Um, and that led me to, um, to this realm of connective tissue disorders and there's plenty. And then after talking with my, um, PCP, my primary care provider, they referred me to a geneticist. And so I met with the genetic counselor and she did a variety of, of testing blood work as well as, um, you know, different diagnostic measures that she was looking at just within my body and my symptoms and I got diagnosed that way. And so um, it has been a journey and it's been interesting to realize, to sort of look backwards at, at these symptoms that I've been having throughout my life and realize they're related. So now I can look back and see like, okay, the fact that I roll my ankle once a month is related. The fact that I have chronic pelvic pain and back pain is related. Uh, the fact that I bruise more easily is related. The fact that um, my even my body type, which is tall and lean, is related. And so it's been interesting to look back, even though those weren't the symptoms that led me to the diagnosis, the dislocations were, to be able to trace back all of these other things that I thought were just quirks. I'm like, no, they're actually all connected <laughs> to, this, um, to this diagnosis that I now have. Yeah, it's quite interesting when, you know, when we are trying to find a diagnosis or something and you don't realize mm-hmm. that you're so interconnected with within mm-hmm. our body till you actually get the diagnosis and you're like oh wait mm-hmm. it makes sense now and because a lot yeah. of it can be mis misguided information or misdiagnosis mm-hmm. right because so many symptoms are similar to other diagnoses mm-hmm. and you don't always mm-hmm. get the same <laughs> response or the same outcome Absolutely. And I also think it's common for women, especially to have the experience of doctors brushing off their symptoms or telling them, you know, that it's in their head or that it's psychosomatic or that they just need to exercise or they just need to lose weight or they just need to eat healthier. They just need to get more sleep. Uh, When in reality, a lot of us have very real symptoms that are related to very real, very real diagnoses and complications that get missed sometimes, uh, which is really unfortunate. Yeah, for sure. So how is the experience having your son different from when you had your daughter? Mm -hmm. With my son, I decided to formula feed from the start. I knew that the, the breastfeeding experience I had with my daughter was a huge contributor to my postpartum depression. And I knew if I wanted to avoid postpartum depression, I needed to do as many things differently as possible uh, with my son's postpartum 
season. So I decided to formula feed from the start and that allowed me to do just so many things to keep myself in a healthy mental state. So it meant that my hormone levels went back to pre-pregnancy homeostasis much more quickly. It meant that I could sleep in longer shifts because my husband could take half the night feeds. It meant that um, I could get back to wearing the clothes that I wanted to wear. And that sounds so silly. And sometimes, you know, people will comment on my Instagram and be like, you shouldn't choose formula because of what you want to wear. But if you have experience with depression, those, those, they're almost like guideposts of normalcy in your life. And that was a big thing for me to be able to be back into, into the clothes that felt comfortable to have help, to be able to have babysitters and to be able to take my older daughter out for lunch because I could leave formula and leave, um, you know, my baby with a babysitter, which, you know, is much more difficult to do if you're nursing or pumping. All of those things were a factor. Um, I've also realized since my diagnosis that a lot of women with um, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome struggle to nurse or breastfeed because we have um, extra elasticity in our nipples. Um, And so, and yeah, that's one of the symptoms is um, elasticity in my skin. So my skin is much stretchier than than the average person. Um, And that makes it especially difficult to pump. Uh, because it's impossible to get the right flange size. And so knowing that as well, I was like, okay, all of the factors have aligned where this is just the right choice for me. And I'm not sure that we'll have another child, but if we do, I would absolutely go straight to formula again, because between um, the reality of my physical body and the reality of my, what I need mentally after birth, um, breastfeeding and pumping is just not workable. Well, I mean, my experience was literally, um, they wanted me to pump in the hospital mm-hmm. and, uh, I put the pump on once and I had a massive panic attack mm-hmm. and I told my husband, I wanted to run away. Yeah. And I said, I cannot do this. Mm-hmm. And like the next time I had to pump, they told me it was every three hours. I was like, Nope, nope. I can't do it every three hours. I need mm-hmm. my sleep. And so I had a massive panic attack. And what ended up happening is, um, we ended up staying in the hospital for five days and Mm -hmm. it was a whole, a whole series of things that led to that. But what ended up happening on that final day, a different lactation consultant came in Mm -hmm. and I finally screamed, I don't want to breastfeed. Mm -hmm. And she was really kind and said, you know what? It's not for everybody. That's fine. Let's get you on this, 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 this. But then Mm -hmm. once I got home, there was still the pressure I put on myself. Yeah. And so I kept not giving up, but my daughter was miserable on breast milk. Mm-hmm. So the times that I would breastfeed her, and I mean, as Sarah knows, I would constantly be, I would constantly be messaging Sarah and I'd be like, this isn't working. And mm-hmm. Sarah would try to give me tips and she tried sure. to be, she was being supportive, but I was mm-hmm. like, finally, you know what? No. And then finally I, when I woke up one morning and said to my husband, like, I want to end things mm-hmm. because I was so depressed mm-hmm. and that's from breastfeeding once a day. And at that mm-hmm. point I said, okay, let me stop breastfeeding. Let's see how things change. Yeah. 48 hours later, mm-hmm. I felt like a new person. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> Just having that control back over, over your time, over your life, and also letting those hormones settle. And I think that's a big factor that I, a lot of people, I don't see a lot of people in lactation community talking about is the hormones. Um, you know, you obviously have this huge hormonal shift at the birth, but then you also have all these, you know, all of your prolactin escalating and everything else. And so, um, that's a big thing. And then I think also the providers that I have seen in, um, 
labor and delivery, during pregnancy, OBs, everything else, they are not disability informed. They really don't seem to have any understanding of the realities of, of what it's like to live in a body that does not function the way that is optimal or that, you know, a typical body is supposed to function. And they definitely don't understand the idea of having to make choices about what you prioritize, that it's not an option to do everything. Um, that sometimes, you know, you have a limited amount of energy, you have a limited amount of capacity because of the demands your disability places on you. And that if you have to make a choice between doing, you know, X or Y, that sometimes breastfeeding is what has to get cut. Um, that there, that there's just not enough energy or capacity in your body sometimes to continue to give that much of your body when your disability is already taking so much. For sure. So I wanted to ask, like, there's so much formulas out there to choose from. Mm -hmm. How did you choose the formula you did for your um, children? Was it like the first thing you saw on the shelf? Was it um, according to what was reasonably priced? I know everyone has a bit of a different Mm -hmm. uh, approach to it. So I just wanted to know how was it for you in choosing the formula for um, your children? It, gosh, it's totally overwhelming. You are right. There are 50 different varieties of formula on the market. And I remember with my daughter, this was prior to becoming an infant feeding technician, prior to doing any real research, because of course I had intended to breastfeed like you're supposed to do. So I had no idea what I was, what I was doing. And I remember she was probably nine days old and I was just standing in the formula aisle crying, being like, what in the world do I do here? Um, it's, it's very, it can be very overwhelming. So for her, we started off with whatever formula they provided in the hospital on day three. And I was like, well, I guess I should keep up with that. So we tried that for a few days at home. And then she started getting really, really um, fussy and gassy and miserable. And I was like, I don't think this is the right fit. And so then I went down the formula rabbit hole as many parents do. Uh, I think we ended up trying like seven different formulas, trying to find one that that we felt good about, um, both in terms of ingredients and price and availability, but that also, um, kept her happy. Mm. And so after finally settling on a formula, honestly, through trial and error with her, I was like, there has got to be a better way to do this, to understand what the different formulas offer and how they treat different symptoms and, and, you know, how I can choose a formula that will work for my for my children, but that I also feel comfortable giving and feel good about giving in terms of ingredients that align with our priorities as a family, you know, in the other ways that we eat. So um, that's when I went back and did my certification. I also worked for a formula company for um, a while as well, and just learned everything that I could about formula so that I could be a resource to other parents who want to choose. So now um, there you know, are a lot of, a lot of things that I know that you can consider when you're choosing a formula specifically, you know, what is the size of the protein? What is the carb source? Um, does your baby need something that's hypoallergenic or lactose free, or, you know, if they're struggling with constipation, you might not want palm oil. There's all sorts of factors at play, um, in terms of picking a formula that's going to be right for your baby. And I wish it was straightforward. I wish it was like, Oh, well, the majority of babies will be fine using X or Y, but that's why there are 50 different ones. (laughs) because there are a lot of babies with a lot of different needs. Exactly. And you can get them in so many different forms, like the powder form, mm-hmm. go already where you just pop off the, the top and add the nipple on and, mm-hmm. and, you know, give it to them. Like there's just like, I would think I would be so overwhelmed just trying to pick 
uh, which one. And, and again, you know, like you said, trial and error, because if, if it doesn't work for your child, then your child's going to be miserable. Therefore, then you're going to be miserable because you yeah. know, have an upset stomach or they're gassy or mm-hmm. something. Um, so it's like, it's, I, you know, like you said, I wish there was an easier way or a more mm-hmm. way where it, we would be able to choose the right one for our children. But unfortunately, it's not like that. <laughs> Yeah. And it's unfortunate too, that the places where parents typically go for support, whether that's, you know, their labor and delivery nurse or their um, postpartum nurse at the hospital or their pediatrician, those folks generally are not super knowledgeable about formula um, other than the fact that it, you know, it, it exists and they can potentially encourage that use, but they're also biased by financial agreements that, um, that the, health organization or the university or the hospital has with formula companies. So the, the hospital where I deliver will only provide Similac formula and Similac formula is great for some babies, but other babies might need something that's partially hydrolyzed and there's not a super great Similac option that's partially hydrolyzed. And so it can be really hard to find, um, unbiased information about what formula to use and the formula that your pediatrician or your hospital may recommend might not be what's actually going to be best for your baby. It might be what they have on hand because of a, a relationship that they have with the brand. For sure. And I know somebody um, that I know that um, was giving their baby formula. They were giving them the gentle ease formula. And then the, um, the mm-hmm. pediatrician said, oh, well, you shouldn't use that because potentially your child could end up being lactose intolerant. Mm-hmm. So, but, <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's all because I think, mm-hmm. Um, they ended up getting that one because the other formula they tried was not really working mm-hmm. for her. So they said, okay, let's try the gentle ease one. So it'd be easier on the stomach and, you know, on digestion and all that. And then mm-hmm. the pediatrician comes back and says this, and then they're like, okay, so, yeah. so what do we do? Yeah. We don't and want I, our child to be lactose intolerant. Yeah, of course. No one, no one wants that. Um, and there's, yeah. And I hear, I hear things like that occasionally from folks that message me or email me, and generally speaking, that is not advice that I personally agree with but, um, in terms of the lactose intolerance. But yeah, parents get conflicting information from so many different sources about formula. And it, it's absolutely overwhelming to try to distill down what's high quality information and what is going to work for my child. It's well, difficult for sure. Something that, you know, that happened to me was when I was, you know, trying to do a little bit of breastfeeding and I actually called, um, we have in Ontario, we have telehealth Ontario, which is, you know, like a telehealth hotline. So I called telehealth Ontario because they said that, um, you know, that they, that they do provide breastfeeding support. And I just was asking, you know, my daughter's mostly formula fed. I want to breastfeed her once a day. Can you help me? Cause she's not latching. She doesn't seem to like it. And their answer was basically to make formula unappealing by feeding it to her on a spoon. And mm-hmm. I was, I got off the phone in tears. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking you're giving me advice to basically starve my child so yeah. that she latches on and breastfeeds. And I mm-hmm. sat and cried and cried and cried and said, there's no way mm-hmm. I am depriving my child so, yeah, so we did touch on it a, a bit already, but can you discuss some more issues that surround lactivism and why this can actually hurt women, especially those with disabilities? And mm-hmm. how can, you know, lactation consultants, nurses and doctors better support parents who choose, who want, who want to choose which way to feed their kid? 
Absolutely. So I think lactivism fundamentally assumes that everybody's body is going to work as it was biologically designed. And we know from the number of people that wear glasses, the number of people that use insulin, the number of people um, that are in wheelchairs or have mobility aids, that the body does not always work as it was, you know, quote unquote, biologically designed to do. And when we assume and treat folks like, um, like their body will, we end up really hurting and creating shame and guilt around those folks whose body does not work like that, either mentally or physically. And so I think providers really do a disservice by, number one, making the assumption that somebody's body is going to work the way that it quote unquote should to produce breast milk. And they also do a disservice by making the assumption that that that's what parents want to do with their bodies. I talk a little bit on my page sometimes about bodily autonomy and how we have this fundamental understanding in all other areas that to coerce somebody to do something with their body that they don't want to do is deeply unethical. You know, we understand that on all other facets, but for whatever reason, this idea that we can coerce and pressure and manipulate women into using their bodies to breastfeed when they do not want to, um, that conversation is entirely missing. And so um, providers, I think, would do well to, number one, understand that not everybody is going to want to breastfeed, understand that not everybody can breastfeed, and to realize that being anti-formula puts those people who either don't want to or can't breastfeed in a position of being defensive and being um, distrustful almost immediately of the support that they're trying to provide. So I could talk, I could talk forever about it. It's, you know, it's really, um, it's really tough because I, you will always hear me say that I think breast milk is ideal nutrition for infants if it's workable, but that for a lot of folks, it's not workable. And so providing the support that folks need for whom breast milk is not a workable option is really necessary. And it's almost always lacking. And while we're kind of on that topic, just to uh, Mm -hmm. like about the, what doesn't always work. There's also, you know, people get shamed for having Mm C-sections and this, when I look, you know, I kind of went down the Instagram rabbit hole, which is actually how I found you um, oh, <laughs> back back in April when I was very depressed and didn't wasn't feeling an attachment to my daughter and things were starting off really slow for me. And so, you know, I was reading all the stuff about how, you know, it made it sound like if you have a C-section, you failed, you didn't give birth mm-hmm. and that it wasn't a choice and that, you know, we're so sorry this happened. We know it wasn't your mm-hmm. first choice. And that's really frustrating to me because mm-hmm. for me, if, if it hadn't been for my pelvic pain, it could have been my cardiac, uh, my, mm-hmm. my congenital heart defect that would have made me have to have a C-section. They said my heart was strong enough that it was my mm-hmm. pelvic pain that decided it. But, you know, for women with disabilities, having the option to have a C-section and to choose that option is I mean, for some women, no, it might not be the best option. So I'm not saying everybody should go have a C-section. Yeah, absolutely not. I'm saying for some of us, that was the best option. And I can tell you like eight days after having my C-section, I was already feeling way better than Mm -hmm. I felt the entire pregnancy. And so, I mean, tell me more about that and, you know, and and kind Mm of how how medical professionals can also advocate for choice when it comes to how you deliver your baby. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's definitely intertwined in this same sort of um, debate around the biological norm. There's this idea that the biological norm is what's best. So, you know, the biological norm is vaginal birth. The, The biological norm is breastfeeding. The biological norm is also that, you know, families have eight children and that they die at age 40. And so, you know, we've long ago in other areas gotten over the idea that what's best is what is biologically normal. Um, I absolutely understand providers wanting to discourage C-sections because there's very real extra risk involved um, in in a way that's different than breast milk versus formula. There are benefits to formula, but the benefits to formula are very marginal long-term, whereas the risks associated with a C-section can be significantly greater than a vaginal birth. So I absolutely understand that providers don't want to encourage C-sections in a sort of willy-nilly way. However, um, ultimately, that risk assessment and what the patient is willing to risk needs to be the patient's decision because, again, it's their body. They need to have the autonomy to say, you know, I understand the risk and this is a risk that I'm willing to take on. Um, I think with both breastfeeding and elective C-sections, there is the default assumption that it's just a choice that a a parent is making because it seems easier. When in reality, the folks that I've talked to who've chosen formula and or who've had an elective C-section, there are always additional factors at play. Laziness is is what gets treated as the predominant factor. And it is pretty much never a factor. The problem is that both birth and breastfeeding are extremely vulnerable and extremely private um, sort of events. And so people aren't going to willingly offer up like, hey, I have elastic nipples. Hey, I have pelvic pain. And so um, there's this scenario where folks generally aren't super vocal about why they've made these selections. And so then people assume they've made these selections because they're lazy or they're selfish or whatever. And so I think generally just keeping in mind the fact that we do not know the reality of anyone's story We do not know the reality of why someone may be making a choice that we feel like we personally wouldn't make, Um, but that even though we don't know, even though we may not understand, we can still validate that that people are smart and the reasons why they make decisions are, are valid, even if we don't know or understand what they are. Well, I think, I mean, Sarah and I can kind of discuss, we, we've talked about how, you know, there is this stigma around uh, disability where people mm-hmm. are think, oh, you have a disability, so you get to lie around and watch TV all day, lucky you, <laughs> or something like that, mm-hmm. or you can be lazy, or, you know, you can, mm-hmm. you have an accessible parking permit, so you don't have to walk that far when you go to the grocery store, you just park in that mm-hmm. spot. And that's, I think, this, like you mentioned with breastfeeding mm-hmm. or with a C-section is that you're seen as, oh, you're just lazy. And this is such a huge stigma uh, with disabled people. And I mean, I think we all have experience with Mm -hmm. people thinking that, oh, we're just trying to get out of something. Or Sarah, I mean, you've Mm -hmm. talked about how people have have thought they didn't believe you that you have low vision. Yep. And it's such a a real thing and and it's horrible. Mm -hmm. And I think society just goes through waves of promoting and not promoting c-section and breastfeeding um because mm-hmm. i don't know like my mom was saying back in the day like when i was born um in like the 90s 
it was mm-hmm. about formula. Yeah. Not about breastfeeding. And when she had my youngest brother in 2003, like there was a bit of an age difference, mm-hmm. all about the breast, the breast, mm-hmm. the breast, not formula. And then mm-hmm. I've also known people where automatically, you know, they want to have a natural birth. And the doctor's like, well, you know, at five months or six months pregnant, you're going to have to have a C-section because your baby looks too big. Mm-hmm. So they're already planting the seed for people to make this decision. And then mm-hmm. now for our first time mom being pregnant, you're, you know, you're, you're worried and, and yeah. anxious because you're like, oh my God, my baby's going to be too big. How am I going to have, mm-hmm. and they're saying I need to have a C-section. So there are all these worries. So there's like, they're planting the seed and then, you know, you go into delivery and then they said, oh, okay, well, it's been five hours. You're not progressing. Let's just yeah. do a C-section. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The the conventional idea of what folks should do oscillates wildly. I mean, there, you're absolutely right that in the 80s and 90s, there was a huge swing towards formula feeding. I think in the 70s, even the initiation rates for breastfeeding were as low as 25%. Now they're 83%, 83% of families in the US initiate breastfeeding in the hospital. So there's been this huge pendulum swing, even in the last couple of decades, away from formula to breastfeeding. And I think truly what would benefit everybody is a really good solid midpoint of, you know, we're not going to push one thing or another. We're going to evaluate what the individual patient's goals are, what the individual family's realities are, both socially, biologically, physiologically, mentally, emotionally, all of that. Um, And then support that family's goals based on what makes sense for them versus, you know, everybody should have a natural birth. Everybody should formula feed. Everybody should breastfeed. Everybody should have a C-section, um, which largely happens in Brazil and places like that. Um, like Just more nuance is needed. Yeah. And like, I don't know about um, in the US, but I know over here now, even if you decide to choose a midwife over a uh, gynecologist, you're kind of being judged or stereotyped based on that too, because you know, like it's always been, you have a gynecologist and you always go to the Mm -hmm. hospital. But like you said, like each family has their own goals, their own preferences, their Mm -hmm. own comfort needs. So if they want to have a midwife or if they want to have the experience of a home birth, and if that's what they choose, then they should be Mm -hmm. okay with that uh, decision and be okay to speak about and and not feel criticized or judge or like, Mm -hmm. how could you have a midwife and not, you know, not a OBG? Mm -hmm. You just think midwives are not actual certified doctors to deliver a baby versus you know OBG so it's quite interesting how things are kind of taking a backwards term in certain things well Sarah the interesting thing is too and I mean our listeners and our viewers can connect can correct me if I'm wrong but if you have a disability and you're in a high-risk pregnancy program you're not even allowed a midwife you just have an Mm -hmm. OB Uh, they will not give you a midwife so if I wanted everybody kept saying to me during my pregnancy, well, what's your midwife saying? What's your midwife saying? When I tell them about a symptom I was mm-hmm. having and I'd be like, I'm not allowed a midwife. I only have an OB and he's impossible mm-hmm. to reach because he looks after thousands of people with congenital heart defects at the same time. Did I mm-hmm. see my OB during my pregnancy? I think twice. I saw the nurse because he had so many patients with disabilities, with other heart conditions that I was considered one of the low risk, high risk people and I was shoved <laughs> yeah. to the bottom. So it, mm-hmm. it's interesting that with, when you have a disability, you're not offered that much choice when you're mm-hmm. having a baby. And that, I find that, I find that very hard to comprehend because 
from my understanding, at least with a midwife, midwife, you have more of a personal connection and you get to know that person and answer all your questions throughout mm-hmm. nine months. And that'll be there for you even throughout the whole, you know, l- delivery process versus like you said, um, Jackie, like you only saw your, you know, OBG like twice out of the two times. Mm-hmm. And that's not even a guarantee that he's going to be actually when delivering your baby, if you mm-hmm. were to go into, you know, early labor. Mm-hmm. And actually I'll jump in here. That was one of, that was an additional factor for why I chose an elective C-section is I knew that my OB could be there performing the, the procedure, um, doing the C-section. And I was like, I have had enough complications both, you know, with the pregnancy and with my, you know, disability and chronic pain. I have tried to talk to enough doctors in my life and explain to them what I need, what, you know, what works for my body, what doesn't work for my body and all of that. I was like, I don't want to risk that I have some random person at my delivery that, that doesn't know me, that doesn't know my medical history. And that I feel like I can't trust because I, I have a lot of distrust for doctors after, you know, trying to be diagnosed for five years. And so, um, you know, that was a factor as well for me. For sure. And I think I agree, like I, I'm not a mom yet, but you know, I plan on hopefully soon, but it's Mm -hmm. having, you know, to explain my disability over and over again, just in the medical field. And just right now me seeing a lot of different doctors, it's, it's quite exhausting and no Mm -hmm. understand or get, get it to the point where you kind of want them to get it so it's like when I think about okay when I gonna when I potentially um have a child you know am I going to choose a midwife or OBG and I you know Mm -hmm. I would think that I would want to go with a midwife because I could have that sit down conversation and we Mm -hmm. can both get to know each other versus going into the doctor's office every so often for a 15 minute checkup and then on the day of not even knowing if that doctor will be delivering my baby and knowing my accessibility needs at that time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Mallory, thank you so much for joining us today. We've, this has been really informative and it's a great discussion. And what we're always trying to do here is in addition to discussing Mm -hmm. invisible disabilities, visible disabilities and all that, and the stigmas and trying Mm -hmm. to advocate we're also talking talking a lot about pregnancy with disability because it's not something that people talk yeah. about much online. I, I mm-hmm. remember my whole pregnancy trying to find stuff on disability and I managed to find like one article on <laughs> whattoexpect.com about what to do if you're pregnant and you use a wheelchair. And that yeah. was like, as far as they were concerned, the only disability that required <laughs> an article. So I yeah. really appreciate that you're having this discussion and that, you know, and, and I'm so glad that you joined us today. Now, tell mm-hmm. us just a little bit more about a little bit more about what you do and where we can find you. Mm-hmm. I run an online educational platform at theformulamom.com. I'm on Instagram and TikTok at theformulamom. And I support parents who are interested in supplementing or exclusively formula feeding. Everything from choosing a right formula to uh, getting over some of the guilt and shame that parents sometimes feel to formula feeding safely and successfully and with confidence. So I have a ton of resources, including a free formula guide. So if you're in that formula aisle and you're like, where do I start? I have a free formula guide you can download that has a, it's my curated list of my favorite formulas by certain uh, certain needs. So I would love to, to see you guys over there um, on my social channels or to help you out if you need help. 
Thank you so much. I definitely have learned a lot today just um, in our discussion, even though I'm not a mom yet, but it's mm-hmm. good to to know. So I'm really glad to have this conversation. And yes. and also, I, I do want to admit, Sarah is already a cat mom. <laughs> okay, there you go. So she does have a cat. So she's got her 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 um, pre-child mm-hmm. right now. So oh, yes, she's, she's getting ready and, you know, and, and mm-hmm. obviously everybody can follow her cat on Instagram as well because he yes. has an Instagram account. So oh, that's amazing. Thank you so much again for coming on the show. And um, mm-hmm. this has been amazing. And we will hopefully catch up with you again soon. All right. That sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. You've been listening to What's the Difference podcast. For the video versions of all our episodes, please visit our YouTube channel and don't forget to subscribe to help us get our custom URL. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, visit us on social or connect with us at what's the difference podcast at gmail.com.